Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today we will be discussing A Room of One's Own, published in 1929 by Virginia Woolf. This book has a very different tone than the other books we've read so far, whereas the other texts have undertaken the work of illuminating lost history or calling societies to action or cutting through philosophical error with the sharp knife of reason. Virginia Woolf's work is like talking with a friend or hearing the internal dialogue in your own head. This book is very much in the moment of 1929 England, but it's also timeless in her stream of consciousness observations about what it feels like to be a thinking woman. Um, I can't wait to discuss this book with my reading partner today, Susanna Fur. Hi, Susanna. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's start out by learning a little bit about the author of this iconic book, Virginia Woolf. So I'll just talk a little bit about her. Virginia Woolf was born Adeline Virginia Stephen in Kensington, London, England in 1882. Her father, Leslie Stephen, was a respected man of letters, and as a young girl, Woolf was introduced to many literary figures, including Henry James. Wolfe also made great use of the family's vast library, working her way through much of the English literary canon as a teenager. Her summers were spent in St. Ives, Cornwall, which would later form the setting for her famous novel, To the Lighthouse. And I have to throw in that listeners should definitely read To the Lighthouse as well. Um, it's a fantastic book and pa- lots of patriarchy themes in that book. Mm-hmm. Um, In 1895, when Wolfe was just 13, her mother died, triggering the first of many mental breakdowns throughout her life. Um, Starting at the age of 15, Virginia's father and his doctor claimed that reading and writing made her nervous condition worse, and they prescribed a regime of physical labor, like gardening, to prevent a total nervous collapse. But this actually made her anxiety worse, but she kind of didn't put that together. And throughout her life, she kind of obsessively engaged in physical labor, trying to help herself feel better. Um, But it seemed like that wasn't quite the right prescription for her personality. Um, Between 1897 and 1901, she was able to take courses in Greek, Latin, German, and history at the Ladies Department of King's College London. Um, It's worth noting that after attending public school, all of Virginia's brothers attended Cambridge University. In contrast, the girls in the family were homeschooled, and Virginia was lucky to go to college at all. She was really lucky to go to the ladies' department of King's College, but she felt that um, inequity really keenly, Mm -hmm. um, as you would, right, Mm -hmm. especially for someone like her. Um, After graduating from King's College, she began publishing work with the Times Literary Supplement. However, in 1904, following the death of her father, Wolfe suffered another breakdown, and that led to her being institutionalized for a time. Following her discharge, Wolfe and her sister and brother moved from their family home to a new home in Bloomsbury. It was here that Wolfe met Lighton Strahey, John Maynard Keynes, E.M. Forrester, and various other writers and intellectuals. In 1912, Virginia married the author Leonard Wolfe, who nursed her through another breakdown and a suicide attempt. Um, He was a really good guy, by all Mm -hmm. accounts. Um, Wolfe published her first novel, The Voyage Out, in 1915. And this, as well as various essays, quickly established her as a major public intellectual. 
During the 20s, Woolf published the novels that established her as a leading figure of modernism and one of the great British novelists of the 20th century. She published Mrs. Dalloway in 1925, that's another must read, To the Lighthouse in 1927, and Orlando in 1928. Wolf was also a popular speaker, and on October 20th and 26th of 1928, she delivered speeches to two student societies at Cambridge University. She later combined these speeches into an extended essay with six chapters and published it in book form in September 1929 as A Room of One's Own. Um, her work has been translated into 50 languages, and her major novels have never been out of print. Um, after completing her last novel, Between the Acts, Wolf fell into a period of deep depression, which was made worse by the onset of World War II and the destruction of her home during the Blitz. On March 28, 1941, fearing total mental collapse, Wolf drowned herself by filling her overcoat pockets with stones and walking into the River Ouse near her home. She was 59 years old. Um, and also, this wasn't in the biography in the book, but I think it's really important to add that Virginia Woolf was also a survivor of sexual abuse. And I think it's an imp important detail to include, given the nature of Woolf's work, and in general, I believe in destigmatizing abuse by talking about it, um, mm -hmm. because I think that helps to know that there, it's not something to be ashamed of. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Just... So let's get started. We're going to dive into the text. Um, it's this book, as we mentioned, is six chapters long. And let's get started and um, I'll dive into chapter one. So the very first sentence introduces Wolf's style. Um, she had been asked to give a lecture on women in fiction. And she begins with this, quote, when you asked me to speak about women in fiction, I sat down on the banks of a river and began to wonder what the words meant. The first duty of a lecturer is to hand you, after an hour's discourse, a nugget of pure truth to wrap up between the pages of your notebooks and keep on the mantelpiece forever. All I could do was offer you an opinion upon one minor point. A woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction. And that, as you will see, leaves the great problem of the true nature of woman and the true nature of fiction unsolved. And so she just brings the listener um, in like a confidant as she goes throughout her day. And she, she starts by talking about how she was sitting on a river or a riverbank in Oxbridge, which is like a term people use that combines Oxford and Cambridge. Um, and she's sitting by the river trying to brainstorm ideas for the speech. And she describes a process of thinking of an idea like fishing, where she's dangling a line down into her mind and waiting for a tug. And I could totally relate to that feeling of that process of trying to like, kind of wait for the muse to come mm -hmm. and like, where is it? So she says that she had a, a thought that like came tugging at her fishing line and she pulled it up and tried to um, examine the thought. But as she was thinking and like trying to understand um, what that new idea was, she got up and started strolling across the lawn, kind of trying to examine her idea. So she says, quote, instantly a man's figure rose to intercept me. Nor did I at first understand that the gesticulations of a curious-looking object in a cutaway coat and evening shirt were aimed at me. His face expressed horror and indignation. Instinct rather than reason came to my help. He was a beetle, 
And that means it's B-E-A-D-L-E, which means like a ceremonial officer at the college. I was a woman. So she says, he was a beetle. I was a woman. This was the turf. There was the path. Only the fellows and scholars are allowed here. The gravel is the place for me. This, this interruption sent my little fish into hiding. What idea it had been that had sent me so audaciously trespassing, I could not now remember. That's the end of the quote. Yeah. For me, that was such, like, I will use the word gross part because it just infuriated me to think about if you multiply all the ideas of women who haven't gotten to share their idea because all of a sudden they were reminded like, oh, you don't get to have the idea. And in this case, you can't walk here. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and she lost that train of thought. It just feels so, such a, such a huge waste of, of just brilliance and talent and even mundane little ideas, just this, this treasure that goes missing because women have been barred and irrelevant and um, she'll talk about that notion of waste, waste, waste. Mm -hmm. And I, it is, I mean, it's a perfect word for what happens when women are not allowed in that arena. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so true. So the next episode is Wolf um, describes the differences between the men's college and the women's college at the university, or rather the men's colleges, because there were multiple colleges for men and then just one little side one for women. She illustrates these differences really in, again, in this show, don't tell kind of way. She, she describes eating lunch at the men's college. And I'm just going to read a little bit of it because it's so lovely. She describes souls like the kind of fish, souls sunk in a deep dish over which the college cook had spread a counterpane of the whitest cream. After that came the partridges with all their retinue of sauces and salads, the sharp and the sweet, each in its order. Their potatoes, thin as coins, but not so hard. Their sprouts, foliated as rosebud, but more succulent. Um, and she describes the, the wine glasses had been flushed yellow and flushed crimson, had been emptied, had been filled. So they're just being like luxuriously mm. treated to this mm -hmm. multi-course meal. And then she has her afternoon. And then later she describes that she ate supper at the women's college cafeteria. So she goes over to the women's college. And this is her description of dinner. Dinner was ready. Here was the soup. It was a plain gravy soup. One could have seen through the transparent liquid any pattern that there might have been on the plate itself, but there was no pattern. The plate was plain. Next came beef with its attendant greens and potatoes, a homely trinity suggesting the rumps of cattle in a muddy market. <laughs> I loved that part. Mm -hmm. uh, and then she describes like the dessert is prunes. <laughs> and so she describes the prunes as stringy as a miser's heart and exuding a fluid such as might run in miser's veins who have denied themselves wine and warmth for 80 years and yet not given to the poor. <laughs> so Good. She's such a, so yeah. good, such a good writer. Anyway, and then she just ends, that was all, the meal was over. Um, but just this really vivid imagery of the difference between the two meals. Yes, but don't you think it's so clever how she's tracing the inequity from that very first day of mm -hmm. here were my two dinners? Because later she'll say, what force is behind that plain china off which we dined? like one had all the exquisite dinnerware and glassware. And then there was just this kind of homely ceramic little plate. And she was saying, 
you know, this is having an effect. And she'll even say poverty, what effect poverty has on the mind. But later she'll say, yeah, it does matter. It does matter what we eat. Yeah, totally. That's such a great point. Um, and that does lead to the the next part where she has a conversation with her professor friend, right? Where they're mm-hmm. talking about these inequities. And after dinner, she talks to her friend, Mary Seaton, who's a science teacher at the college, about the inequity. And Mary explains how hard it's been to raise money for the women's college. Um, they're just trying to scrape together 30,000 pounds. And they point out it's not a large sum, considering that there is to be but one college of this sort meaning one women's college for Great Britain, Ireland, and the colonies, and considering how easy it is to raise immense sums for boys' schools. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it had been easy to raise those funds. I mean, if you think Oxford or Oxford and Cambridge had been like richly endowed for hundreds and hundreds of years, and then they could not scrape together enough money for the, or they barely could for the mm-hmm. women's college. Mm-hmm. And they said, the amenities, she said, quoting from some book or other, will have to wait. Um, And then the next quote, she says, at the thought of all those women working year after year and finding it hard to get 2,000 pounds together, and as much as they could do to get 30,000 pounds, we burst out in scorn at the reprehensible poverty of our sex. What had our mothers been doing then that they had no wealth to leave us, powdering their noses, looking in at shop windows, flaunting in the sun at Monte Carlo? Um, and and that's the end of the quote. And it's, mm-hmm. it's sarcastic, right? Because she mm-hmm. knows, of course not. Their mothers were probably not allowed to leave the private domestic sphere in order to work. And under the laws of coverture, their earnings would have just gone to their husbands anyway. And, and Wolf mentions this. She says later, for all the centuries before that, it would have been her husband's property, a thought which perhaps may have had its share in keeping Mrs. Seaton and her mothers off the stock exchange. Every penny I earn, they may have said, will be taken from me. And so they're just talking about like the cycle of why women are not able to accumulate wealth in order to be able to, for example, donate it to a women's college and kind of get some momentum for women. Mm -hmm. Okay, one last quote to sum up chapter one. Back to Wolf and her day at Oxbridge, she says, Um, As she's walking home at the end of the evening, she says, I thought of the shut doors of the library, and I thought how unpleasant it is to be locked out. And I thought how it is worse, perhaps, to be locked in. And thinking of the safety and prosperity of the one sex and the poverty and insecurity of the other, and the effect of tradition and of the lack of tradition upon the mind of a writer. Um, That's, I just thought that was... Uh, a great way of wrapping up how her yeah. day had gone. It's like, doesn't she, she so, goes in and it's dark night and she goes right to bed and she's just, you can just feel the weight of all of that on her mind. And I think in chapter two, it's kind of h- hilarious after her horrible experience with that being left, like left or out or like excluded. She's kind of, it's again, it's kind of sarcastic because she's like, I decided I would go to a place where I could get the truth. Like, because that didn't, you know, that wasn't going to work going in that library. Mm -hmm. So she goes to the British Museum um, and she decides, you know, what I'll do is I'll do some research. So she writes at the top of her page, women and poverty in block letters. Um, she, I, she picks like 12 titles, sends a little slip back. They descend, they, they deliver the books to her. And I, this quote, it just kind of grossed me out because it's so, it's such a strange list back to back of these things. But she says, 
every page in my notebook was scribbled over with notes. And it looked something like this. Condition in middle ages of. Habits in the Fiji islands of. Attractiveness of. Offered as sacrifice to. I don't think I'll go on, but it's just the weirdest list of, well, let's look the next one. Small size of brain of. Yeah. Profound or subconsciousness of. It's just, it's gross. It's body hair, the length of this, of life, the physical inferiority of. It's such a creepy list. And then it goes into like Lord Birkenhead's opinions of. And I'm like, why are we, why are we caring, you know? And it's, it's so gross. Um, And again, it's man after man after man's opinion. Does woman have a soul or not? Is she superior morally or not? And um, it's just, what did you think about that list? It's so, it's super yucky to read. Super yucky. Totally. So she ends up leaving the library, but I think what's so fascinating is she admits like the education of men has bred in them defects as great as women experience. And she says, true, they had money and power, but only at the cost of harboring in their breasts an eagle, a vulture, forever tearing the liver out and plucking at the lungs, the instinct for possession, the rage for acquisition, which drives them to desire other people's fields and goods perpetually to make frontiers and flags, battleships and poison gas to offer up their own lives and their children's lives. Hmm. And I think that's part of that education too. And I see that even now, like there's these male, there's these sensibilities of different careers being more macho and cool. And, and there's this hierarchy of what men, cool men or great or strong men can do. And that, that is harmful. And ultimately it is going to create that, that anxiety of like, uh, and for the people that are already naturally kind of more macho, maybe it works, but Mm. then they're just oblivious to the fact that they aren't better. You know, they need to be, mm-hmm. or they're not more than, they're just different. And the equality, mm-hmm. I think, would make everybody feel so much better because yeah. it's it's just not, it's not real. It's not, it's a, it's a feigned illusion, illusory thing. So mm-hmm. totally. Okay. The next chapter, chapter three, is where Wolf talks about women characters in fiction. Um, and I'll just start with a quote. It says, quote, Women have burnt like beacons in all of the works of all the poets from the beginning of time. Indeed, if woman had no existence save in the fiction written by men, one would imagine her a person of the utmost importance, very various, heroic and mean, splendid and sordid, beautiful and hideous in the extreme, as great as a man, some would say greater. But this is woman in fiction. In fact, as Professor Travelands points out, and there she's referencing another text that she had read in the British Museum, she says, in fact, as this professor points out, she was locked up, beaten, and flung about the room. Um, that quote had pointed out how women in, I think, around in the, at the time of Shakespeare, and he talks mm-hmm. about, like, for hundreds of years that women were just, yeah, um, it was okay. abused, and yeah. it was okay. Yeah. I Um, hated, yeah, reading that was really hard for me because it was, it was again in that kind of vein of like, she had looked up women, comma, condition of, and then she read that phrase about being beaten and flung around. Um, The quote that goes along with that so well is she then sums up, quote, a very queer composite being thus emerges. Imaginatively, she is of the highest importance. Practically, she is completely insignificant. She pervades poetry from cover to cover. She is all but absent from history. She dominates the lives of kings and conquerors in fiction. 
In fact, she was the slave of any boy whose parents forced a ring upon her finger. Some of the most inspired words and profound thoughts in literature fall from her lips. In real life, she could, barely, she could hardly read, scarcely spell, and was the property of her husband. Ugh, it's just so well said. She goes on oh. to talk about this, this idea of like, and I'll just read it, but quote, any woman born with a great gift in the 16th century would certainly have gone crazed, shot herself, or ended her days in some lonely cottage outside the village, half witch, half wizard, feared and mocked at. For it needs little skill in psychology to be sure that a highly gifted girl who had tried to use her gift for poetry would have been so thwarted and hindered by other people, so tortured and pulled asunder by her own contrary instincts, that she must have lost her health and sanity to a certainty. I thought, looking at the shelf where there are no plays by women, her work would have gone unsigned. She then lists female authors who took male pen names in order to be taken seriously, and then she continues... The chief glory of a woman is not to be talked of, said Pericles, himself a much talked of man. Publicity in women is detestable. Anonymity runs in their blood. Which it's like, yeah, because it's forced to be that way. Mm -hmm. You know, there was no hope mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for a woman with even with genius. I, I want to just jump ahead while we're on this topic because there's this fun part in chapter five. So in the next chapter... Um, and she, she says, she says, uh, she sees this, she had gone into this beautiful shop that had all these ribbons hanging. She said, this is a site that would lend itself to the pen as fittingly as any snowy peak or rocky gorge in the Andes. And the girl mm -hmm. behind the counter too, I would as soon have her true history as the 150th life of Napoleon or 70th study of Keats and his use of Miltonic inversion. So she's just saying, let's I just start it. hearing new stories, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. It gives me chills. It's, it's powerful, powerful mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm just going to bring out one part from chapter five that I think is really important because it's really groundbreaking, um, kind of revolutionary to find, um, this mentioned. So Wolf describes the work of a new young woman writer named Mary Carmichael. This is a fictional writer. She, there was no real Mary Carmichael, but um, she, she says there's this new woman writer, Mary Carmichael, and she just published a book called Life's Adventure. Here's the quote. Then may I tell you that the very next words I read were these. Chloe liked Olivia. Do not start. Do not blush. Let us admit in the privacy of our own society that these things sometimes happen. Sometimes women do like women. That's the end of the quote. Um, it's a really important moment because she's telling the truth that sometimes women do like women. And she's also telling her truth because women or Wolf herself had had relationships with women, including a long-term affair with Vita Sackville West. And um, homosexuality was still just completely scandalous and unmentionable. Okay, so um, can I share one last quote from that yeah. from that chapter? Yeah. Um, again, with this notion of women getting wasted or getting confused about how they should write, she says, "It would be a thousand pities if women wrote like men, or lived like men, or looked like men, for if two sexes are quite inadequate." considering the vastness and variety of the world. How should we manage with one only? 
ought not education to bring out and fortify the differences rather than the similarities? For we have too much likeness as it is. And if an explorer should come back and bring word of other sexes, looking through the branches of other trees at other skies, nothing would be of greater service to humanity. Ooh, how cool. Yeah. I think oh, it's that's neat. it is clever of her to to talk about this idea of an explorer coming back with because her readers are already going to be or her audience was already going to be kind of maybe jolted by like wow she's saying some really intense things and then she's even saying no we need even more crazy we need more variety we need more <laughs> you know th th yeah. she didn't want to just stay with let's just be like men and kind of fit in so that we we kind of slowly shift out of our role. She's saying, oh, we need more. And it's true what we've learned throughout history, like diversity is, it, it improves us. We all are better mm -hmm. for it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, well, she's so ahead of her time. Like she's mm -hmm. twitching the curtain again Yeah, I, in, in talking about it and also just um, her understanding. I, I agree with you. It's so ahead of her time. Um, just the way she ends her book just was so, so fascinating to me because again, she uses sarcasm. She talks about like, now girls, may I remind you that most of the professions have been open to you for close on 10 years now. This excuse <laughs> of lack of opportunity and training and encouragement, leisure and money no longer holds good. So, you know, <laughs> she, you know, I mean, I hope they laughed. I hope that they didn't take her seriously, you know, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but, but so she gives some of that, but then she really ultimately says, I would ask you to write all kinds of books, hesitating at no subject, however trivial or however vast, to travel and idle, to contemplate the future or the past of the world, to dream over books and loiter at street corners and let the line of thought dip deep into the stream. We've got to. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Well, thank you. Susanna, for such a rich discussion. I learned so much and it was just a joy to have this conversation. Thank you, Amy. I feel exactly the same way. 